With support from the Oregon chapter of the American Planning Association, I'm Chris Damgan. And I'm Ryan Kruger. Welcome to Pints with Planners. On today's episode of Pints with Planners, we will be joined by Nick Sneed, the Community Development Director at the City of Madras, and Dustin Nielsen, the Planning Director of Hood River. They are here to share their experience of planning for smaller communities in Oregon. Here are their backgrounds in their own words. Hello, I'm Nick Sneed. I'm the Community Development Director with the City of Madras, Oregon. I've worked for the City of Madras as a Community Development Director for almost 10 years. And being located on the east side of the Cascades, I think I have a good perspective on small rural planning in Oregon. My name is Dustin Nielsen. I'm the Planning Director for the City of Hood River. Uh, I've been there, or been a land use planner for 20 years, and a member of the AICP. And by virtue of being the only director in the city of Hood River for planning, makes me the subject expert. Before we begin this episode, some background on the show format is important to share with our listeners. Pints with Planners is recorded in a live setting that captures the nuances of conversations over a pint. This includes background conversations, planes, trains, sirens, motorcycles, and more. As you listen to this podcast, imagine you are sitting with us, joining in our discussion of the global challenges we are witnessing on our street corners. Thank you for tuning in for this broadcast of Pints with Planners. We now join our conversation with Nick Sneed and Dustin Nielsen about planning for smaller communities in Oregon. Prost. Salud. So before we get going, we like to start every uh, episode with an icebreaker for you. And um, we're going to pick on you first, Dustin, because you were uh, talking a big game about your, your music talents, and apparently you're a member of a band. So we wanted to ask both you and Nick, um, you know, if as you go through your typical day as, as a planning official in the state of Oregon, I want you to think about what song would be applied to your day-to-day. What would be the soundtrack of your office life? And maybe to make it more fun, what instrument would be playing in that? Because maybe it's an instrumental or maybe it's an actual song. So what, what do you think on that front? I, I guess in honor of my, uh, my Far Eastern uh, Wasco um, connections, I, I would have to say uh, the song Regulators um, would, would be the song by, by uh, Nate Dogg and Warren G. That would be the song, and it would be played on a very small violin um, because that's the sound that you hear before uh, dreams are crushed. So that we are we are the regulators, and and you know, and I think that I think it's fitting. It's is, fitting. Is there a single tear that comes with that small violin? It does. Yeah, it, and there's there's an air of cheese too. The okay. smell of cheese, and because it goes well with the wine. Well, there you go, Nick. You got you got a tough. Tough mountain to climb there. Oh, okay. Well, um, let me know how I do. I think it would be Miss the Boat by Modest Mouse. Mm. And Portland based. You know, as I look at the day to day things that we work on in City Hall, we largely try to do what's right. And never we, we miss the boat and we have a good time doing it. And you know what? You do need a good old fashioned electric guitar just to. Rock it out. Have try to have a good time. Do the best you can, and understand that uh, the work that we're doing is damn hard. And sometimes we're gonna miss the boat, and that's okay. 
And for you, Chris, do you have a soundtrack? Oh, I was just thinking of a simple instrumental music. If you if you guys have ever heard of, um, I think it's called Spanish Flea. It's one mm-hmm. of the quintessential um, things. I'm going to really butcher it, but it's like... Oh, yes. You know what song? Oh, yeah. 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 And, and yeah, basically, yeah. it provides me comic relief because I can walk in the door every day, and every day is going to be totally different than the way I think it's going to go. Mm-hmm. And, you know, after after 12 years of doing this professionally, I just, I, I've learned to just appreciate the comedy because you never know what on earth can happen. You think you have everything planned out. I mean, planning, for God's sake, it's in our name, uh, in our profession, right? And And sometimes just things happen. And you have to plan for the unexpected. So for me, it's that with that lovely original sound. You know, I'm going to go a different direction. I appreciate the professional focus. I appreciate the depth at which you guys have responded here. But you can't have, you can't be a good professional without a good work-life balance. So I'm going to go Queen. I want to ride my bicycle, and I think that that's going to be my mantra. Is even when I'm here, I'm always thinking about getting out and enjoying this big, wide, beautiful world we've got. So. That's going to be my response there. I think that that's, that's spitting. Now, we, again, we like to do a couple of icebreakers here, and we were discussing this before our show started, and I think it's interesting that we started talking about odd jobs. So what's the most random or the most arduous job you've held in your career? It can be planning or it can be not. Uh, what, what, maybe what do you think there uh, as far as maybe your first thing that comes to mind as far as the odd job that kind of stands out? Well. Uh, growing up, my father uh, worked in the um, lumber industry, worked in the lumber yard, and uh, which was kind of great because he was new contractors, and you know we were come from blue collar family, so I always needed money for something, shoes or going on some trip or something. And one of his um, contractor friends wanted uh, some help moving some drywall into this house, and so. Um, the guy said, you're going to need some help, so why don't you get a friend? Sure, we'll do it. We'll be there Saturday morning. Come to find out, it was um, half-inch sheets of 12-foot drywall. Um, and we had to go up basically, uh, you know, three flights of stairs uh, over, you know, call it the side hill full of mud. Um, we were told we were going to be paid good, and we were, except for the actual work that was done. And we, of course, drove home from where we, we were, the job site, and it was about a 20-minute drive, and we almost couldn't drive because we had cramps in our legs. Oh, it hurt gosh. so bad. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was probably one of the worst or the hairiest. Well, you and I share that experience. My dad actually worked on a lumber yard as well mm-hmm. growing mm-hmm. up, and so I, I had that experience. But I did not have that shared experience with you <laughs> in that regard. What about you, Dustin? I have to go go all the way back to uh, to uh, the great state of, of Iowa, and um, I, I worked in a fine establishment known as George the Chili King, uh, family owned small Greek restaurant. Um, still open? I, it is still open. Wow. Um, and it was uh, a complete dive. I mean, it was a greasy spoon. Car hop used to have car shows and. Uh, there was nothing glamorous about it whatsoever, and I, I would sweat behind the grill. And at two in the morning, I would do dishes and come home, and uh, I would wake my parents up because I smelled so bad in the middle of the night. And 
it really uh, it really set the stage for uh, you know for the bar of, of what is of the realm of the possible and um, and really I, I felt like I could only go in one direction from there so um, you know but it was you know it's the Midwest and it's hard work and it's honest work and a lot of drunk people who needed chili at, at midnight really appreciated it so so I felt like I really kicked off my my public service career in some way. But it's customer service. That. It's still customer service. Sure. It teaches you a lot. It it does. So, you know, I'm I'm racking through my brain right now because I, I've I've had kind of like periodic jobs. Nothing as odd, frankly, as the two of you guys have. Um, I, I've worked a graveyard shift and target unloading trucks, but um, I would say actually, um, you know, when I was my freshman year or between my my freshman and sophomore year in college, I uh, thought I was going to go into like resort or hospitality management. Why I would want to do such a thing? Who the hell knows? But um, I worked at a resort island that shall be renamed, uh, remain nameless uh, in, in uh, coastal South Carolina. And uh, that summer, I basically was living in a floodplain, unbeknownst to me. I didn't really know what a floodplain was. It was in a single wide trailer. And that summer happened to be an El Nino summer. And it was one of the rainiest situations. So every morning, part of my job wound up being basically scooping water out of our pathway just to get to our vehicle to go there and um, you know I would be consistently late but I got effectively a late waiver because hey they housed us in a floodplain mm -hmm. without proper permitting so little did I know and I would learn to hate floodplain management ever since but um, that probably was one of my forays into planning um, but it was an odd job because of all the nuttiness um, you know I, I here are little points in here that uh, I can reflect on for each of them. I, I was a lifeguard in the Outer Banks. We lived in a floodplain in some regards as well, lived in trailers. One of my first jobs was working at a pizzeria, and so I came home every night smelling like pizza, and so I had to bury my laundry out in the old, on the back deck, couldn't bring it in the house because it smelled bad. But I still think my, I don't know if it's worst, actually I take that back, worst job ever, most ridiculous odd job ever was selling newspapers door to door in rural and areas in the suburbs of Atlanta and that was one of the most painful experiences that I had but it allowed me to save money for spring break so I enjoyed that that opportunity but um, yeah definitely would never wish that on anyone else um, but it was definitely an eye-opening experience didn't sell knives door-to-door -door. almost me almost <laughs> did that one but did not sell cut code door-to-door ultimately newspapers was, was my worst odd job and now the industry is declining as a result. As a result, yes, exactly. So uh, we want to thank both of you guys for here um, that are here today. A quick, quick note: um, myself, Nick, and Dustin are uh, members of the Oregon City Planning Directors Association (OCPDA). It's a uh, affiliate organization with the uh, League of Oregon Cities. Uh, if you are a planning director in our state, uh, if you have not heard of us or joined us, we strongly encourage you to do that too. Um, so I've gotten to know these guys through that organization and we thought they were a uh, dynamite crew which is why they're here today so we're going to talk a little bit about some of the uh, uh, experiences they have in working in these rural communities and um, I think we want to kick it off with um, you know both of you have been planners for a while now and uh, can you describe your career path and maybe why you what led you to the communities that you're in today and, and the uh, I guess the enjoyment of, of working in those communities, whether they be rural or your current ones. Do you want to jump out first? Nate? Sure. Um, so I was, I was born and raised in Springfield, Oregon, did my undergrad work in Ashland, and then uh, 
did my grad school work in in uh, in Eugene at the University of Oregon, and right after I finished grad school, I started working for a private sector planning firm, and like within thirty days, it I it just wasn't for me, yeah, and I knew uh, in in college, I always knew I wanted to work for um, a city, local government. And so while I was there, I um, applied for a job with the city of Bend and started working with the city of Bend in 2006, which is uh, a really interesting time to start working for the city of Bend. Uh, my first week there, I think we received 15 subdivisions, like 40 partitions. And then like, you know, three months later, we basically went to zero. Jeez. Um, and, and that's where I actually met my wife at the holiday uh, party for the city of Bend. Um, and uh, our first dance, um, fact, this is fact, was to baby got back. Um, and uh, so the, the relationship started there. Of course, you know, that was a hallmark song in our in our uh, wedding, of course. Sure, but, makes a lot bringing people together since 1993. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. You know, um, and so she worked from the city manager's office and actually knew six months before I found out that I was going to get laid off. And uh, and so I got laid off, took a short job with the um, city of Junction City, and ultimately um, was hired on at City Matters as their community development director. And uh, so that's how I got to the city of Madras. Um, quite honestly, a little bit of luck, but also just... Uh, a real strong passion for public service. Um, I think um, it's important to know that, yeah, I'm a community development director, I'm a planner, but above all, I'm a public servant. And, you know, that to me is important because on a day to day basis, we need to pick up trash outside in downtown Madras. I'll do that. Whatever people want. So that's, that's kind of how I got there. A little bit about me. Whatever job needs doing. Right? Wow. Okay. So let's, uh, let's do this some chronology here. Um, I was a warehouse bus driver uh, delivering books, uh, very expensive books before the time of Amazon to uh, doctors and uh, at the University of Iowa and I worked in a unair conditioned dirty factory that I was desperate to get out. Um, so I was uh, in finishing up my undergrad degree. I went to the job fair um, and the EPA was looking for a Brownfields project coordinator. So rather than be a book delivery um, punk, I, I started working in that and I knew about real estate. My, my dad was a real estate developer. Um, so what better way to rebel against a real estate developer and your parents is become a land use, you know, land use planner. Um, so I, I started there and about the same time, um, I got into grad school and uh, started. I got my planning degree. Kept working for the EPA. Um, launched into a career into uh, outside of Denver, Colorado. I started working for the public sector there. Moved back to the Midwest. Um, became a, a development director in a small town in Annie, the village of Antioch, um, which was a, a big taste of small town life in the in the in the flatlands. Um, made my way out to Oregon, worked for Wasco County. And uh, after a couple of years in the county, uh, 
saw an opportunity to be the development or planning director for the city of Hood River. So I picked that up. And that's, it sounds like both of you guys have really spent the majority of your time in small communities. I mean, haven't really worked in any larger cities. Uh, Bend, yeah. Yeah, Bend, I guess, is sort of the largest there. Um, you know, having worked in Bend, which is obviously you kind of were there for the start of your career and then transitioning to some of the smaller uh, jurisdictions, uh, you know, what was that biggest adjustment factor? A lack of people to walk down the hall and say, hey, <laughs> what do you think about this? People uh, bounce ideas yeah, off. Yeah. With, with vast amount of experience. And uh, I would also say the other change would be um, a great amount of insulation from politics at the city of Bend when you're an assistant planner versus a small town. Uh, I don't know if there isn't any insulation. So that, you know, there's, there's kind of a, an adjustment there. And I guess have you worked in, I mean, now I guess in Hood River is... Is it, is it small? Uh, it has a, I think it, it, I think it has an identity crisis. I think um, maybe it does. It has a small population. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think uh, kind of what Nick said is that lack of insulation. I mean, you were, um, and, and that doesn't only apply to the land of politics. That also, you know, we do have personal lives outside of there mm -hmm. in a small town and you're, the public domain is very close. You know, there's no anonymity. And when you are the head land use planner in an area that has contentious land use issues and a really, um, I guess I would call it a, a very engaged population, that, you know, there's no anonymity. So I think that's, a, that's part of the reality of working in the small town. There, there is not a large support system. You learn to do all the jobs and you're exposed to all the decisions. You have your fingerprint on that community and the policies that go through. Absolutely, there's really no place to hide, is there? Um, and um, you know, that is the, uh, the uh, responsibility of being in that public sector. Uh, you know, each of your communities are, are unique. I mean, Hood River, you have a, a tourism aspect and, and with, with Madras, I think it's fair to say you're on the periphery of kind of the Bend Redmond area and you're, you're hoping to tap into that and of course each community may have their own unique challenges can you spend a little time talking about each of your community's unique challenges and um, how does your role or planning and community development play a role in trying to address those challenges I think uh, the Hood River challenge is, is not much different than, than a lot of communities and especially now the housing challenge um, it's uh, a lot of symptoms of success and and really it's coming of age um, you know since 1986 it went from a county seat a logging town to a the kiteboarding and windsurfing capital of the world and a recreational draw and that has you know from that time you can you, you see the change that has occurred and a lot of ways it's a cultural shift that um, that has only escalated in, in probably the last five years with the onset and really the success of the market, really the drive um, and the interest from Portland. Um, it's, it's gotten uh, a lot of attention. It really, it's, it's the market, what I tell people is the market's been ready for Hood River for a long time and Hood River now has to prepare itself for the market. Hmm. So maintaining what it values, uh, experiencing the change, um, 
seeing that cultural shift from what it once was to, to what it is today and really um, having no easy answers. I mean, it, it, that, that right there kind of, that, that's why I'm employed. And, and that's why you have to be passionate about what you do because there are no easy answers and, and it's, a, it's a real challenge to try to find that balance of, of, uh, of growth and prosperity, maintaining the authenticity of the community being in a scenic area that has, you know, hypersensitive and really uh, demanding regulations in a political environment that is, that is really, um, you know, it's, it's the Oregon Land Use Program. It's a highly affluent and highly sophisticated population. It's, you know, it, it has all the makings of an of a environment that is that's just a challenge and a pleasure to work in. So. Well, it's interesting you say that about uh, having no easy answers. As one of my planning professors in graduate school used to talk about the Chinese proverb or Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. I think we're definitely there at this <laughs> point. Yeah, so I think some of the challenges for Madras is, is being on the, called the fringe of Central Oregon. And it, it, it's really interesting. We, we did a... Uh, an update to our urban renewal plan two years ago and we did uh, a word cloud for two different things uh, how would you characterize Madras today and what do you want it to be and the comparison of that was rather interesting and what it showed us is that we are far harder on ourselves hmm. as a community than others see the community from outside right so yeah, housing is really difficult, an issue for us right now. And it's difficult because we're largely a blue collar, uh, 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 wood products and high tech metal manufacturing industry with aeronautical component, aeronautical manufacturing and aeronautical industry. But then you also have the huge ag community around it. Uh, you know, where uh, there's a, 75% chance you go to the grocery store today and the seed that, that created the carrot came from Jefferson County around Madras. Um, so the challenge is, you know, all the construction that's going in the Bend and Redmond area and you have lower wages in Madras, lower growth rates, and it's really hard to get anyone to come there and build a house. Um, employment is growing, but it's growing steadily. I would say sustainably growing, which I think is good, but also creates its own challenge. But then, you know, I get back to that, that issue of how we think of ourselves as a community. And, um, you know, one of the probably more interesting projects I've worked on in a few years is this brewery recruitment. You know, a city recruiting a brewery. My goodness. That's about as counterculture to local government as you'd, you'd kind of see out there. And going through that, you know, there's community members that say, well, why would we recruit a brewery? No one's ever going to come here. We don't, we don't have the market for that. Except when you start looking at the data, the market analysis, you know, it really does bear it out. And so, you know, I think one of the challenges that we have is just, you know, go flesh and self-esteem. Working on that, understanding that, that it's, a, it's an amazing place to, to live and work. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, we're, we're 30 minutes from uh, two state parks that are in the top five busiest state parks in the whole state park system and, and of course access to federal lands that, that just you know people 
uh, in the western uh, part of the state crave for on a weekend basis. You know, and that's really, you kind of touched on there a lot of the components of what we're experiencing in a, a number of communities in the West. And I think that there are pieces there where, you know, we, we look at the resources that are available to us. And I think when we were actually drafting some of these questions, we were looking at kind of uh, some of the ways that those might come together um, as far as how these questions fit. But as I've heard, uh, heard you guys talk about these things, what actually comes to mind is, you know, what gaps are there? What missing resources might you want to have in order to bolster your efforts uh, in each of these uh, communities that you work in? Uh, what could really help set, you, set your communities up for success for the next 10 years? You know, what, what resources would you really want to tap into? Well, from Adrus, I think uh, it, it's really almost, in a way, a kind of a economic development kind of marketing where you know we we really need to be broadcasting the opportunity about relocating your business to an amazing place where you've got amazingly inexpensive <laughs> land for industrial uh, use uh, relatively cheap land for housing or, or uh, inexpensive housing and of course the opportunity to live in, in, in a basically a playground um, and it's not to say that the economic development team doesn't do that, but one of the things I learned with this brewery recruitment is, you know, I can ask the, the barber on Mainstream, hey, don't you think we need a brewery? Oh my gosh, absolutely. We, I've wanted a brewery for years. I can't believe we don't have one. You know, that, you get that kind of response. But where, where I have a kind of weakness in terms of our, our I'll call it the city organizational weakness and, 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 uh, and my need is to substantiate that opportunity. In other words, yeah, you know, I, I could spend endless hours on the internet mining data and all this sort of stuff and create, I guess, the reports myself, but the reality is I can't. You know, I've got uh, new development permits. Uh, I got to go get ready for the planning commission. I got, you know, an elderly uh, senior citizen that's come down to the city hall is really upset about her neighbor and, you know, the tall grass. And then, you know, I've um, got an issue with the school district I got to work on. It, it's hard to work on those um, projects that really are needed that take a lot of time um, that, that could take you a great distance. To do it, the analysis. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, if what, it, what it comes down to, you know, I try to manage my priority. Okay, what's the priority today? But also, okay, well, what really matters to the community? I try to figure out what that impact is. And, you know, it's tough to get there sometimes and spend that extra time to do that data analysis to quantify that opportunity or, or, or need uh, what it is, whatever it is we're, we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, it's... I mean, you talk about the kind of the daily triage of, of business, and I think that's one of the challenges that's presented to us is, is try to handle the day-to-day that impacts people's lives uh, and at the same time find time to actually plan for the future and to invest yourself and your experience um, and you know, your brain power and your resources into some actual forward planning that will not only just address the situation today, but actually kind of, you know, it's establishing that compass that leads your community into the future and leading into, you know, leading into the future takes some time and it takes bandwidth. And, you know, as you want to wrap this into small town, 
I don't get to delegate that to a series <laughs> of, you know, of, uh, you know, of middle management and of workers. You know, your your access to the planning director is pretty quick because there's not a lot of alternatives or ability to delegate. And, you know, my staff is amazing. They are amazing, but I, I find myself trying to buy them time, um, so they can do their job, so that they can exercise and their their talents and what they do and we find ourselves I think really that's some of the artistry is it's not really knowing how to plan it's also how to balance your resources and how to provide opportunity for your talent to use that talent rather than just you know then run the the government ER of the day and and to try to get ahead and when the you know honestly when the, the economy is so good in a lot of ways that becomes increasingly difficult, mm-hmm. you know, and that is, uh, I think that's part of the artistry of being the planning director is how do you, how do you kind of develop that and how do you keep your office running and actually get out and plan. Right. So for my resources, um, you know, I love, I love to do more forward planning, but I have to, you know, I'm on the shot clock with land use applications, you know, that the day that comes in, I can't just, you know, put that on hold and, you know, and that's a, you know, that's kind of the symptom of some of the Oregon system is, you know, in a small town, a lot of times you can be really effective um, without a lot of people of, you know, a lot, without having to navigate a lot of bureaucracy in a small town. That is not the case in Oregon because, you know, our bureaucracy is run from the state. So whether you're in the city or whether you're in a town of, you know, 4,000 or less, you navigate the same process in a lot of ways once you leave your shop. And so your needs and our demands on, um, you know, from the state level to try to get those accomplished, to find those. And a lot of times they're, you know, they're the same demands for a large city, except I'm, I don't have the full resources and I can't delegate. It's, it's my shop. It's my people. You know, it's the four of us fighting it out. You know, we're, taking out the trash, the same people that are doing that are the same people that are writing, you know, a goal 10 analysis to try to estimate what, you know, the 25 year population is. It's the same crew. And, you know, I, I have to tip my hat to the people that work for me because I make them crazy. And, you know, they, if they didn't love it, you, you know, you would not last doing this job. So, you know, it's, it's, it's nothing that happens fast, but you know, it's a, it's great. I love it. And, and that's also why, why we have pints with planners, yeah. I guess. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's, that's employee retention, my friend. <laughs> Job security. But, you, yeah. you know, Dustin, you, you hit on something, and it was actually kind of on our short list of questions. You know, Oregon is, in fact, unique. And, I mean, unique in many ways, but maybe in some cases frustrating. I think one question that I would, I'm really interested in is, you know, we see these recs or, you know, these expectations that come in from Salem. Do you feel like the smaller communities have an effective voice or do you think that um, the state policy makers and rule makers need to be more receptive or responsive to the concerns that you guys have, both from a logistical perspective and, and from a practical perspective as being profession, professionals in, in areas, say, outside of Portland or the, or the Valley? Oh, I'm... I'm going to temper this one because I'm, I'm on the record and I, I signed this waiver already, but... Um, we won't shoot you. <laughs> a lot of times when you have legislators trying to address concerns and um, taking 
taking their legislative authority into the, the realm of planning is terrifying because you know there's a you know, there's a statement of and I love to say this is you know, that when it comes to government, if you think the problems that we have to deal with are bad, wait until you see our solutions. And that's my, that's my, my one-sided kind of statement, um, you know, kind of dealing with this as a practitioner in the planning world and trying to address planning problems and having legislators from far away do it. Um, we are subject experts. I feel like a lot of times we are not tapped into to deal with these things and our expertise and you know, I got 20 years of doing this, you know, and I, I know there's good intentions to it. And there's there's oftentimes, you know, a balance of politics that they have to deal with as well. Um, but I, I feel like I feel left out a lot and I feel like I have to be uh, pretty assertive and actually kind of step out of my lane oftentimes to be heard. And it's uh, and, and you want to be mindful of of you know again of, of their needs of your elected officials of your citizenry but also you know you at some point you have a professional obligation to the citizens you serve and also the profession that you that you've chosen so I think that's you know ethically you know I'm, I'm here to stand up for for the profession and what we do and to represent you know my citizens uh, by taking kind of that almost like that oath of office in a way that, you know, I'm, I'm there to serve them. I am a public servant and I'm a professional planner. And I feel to some extent, if I have the knowledge and brain power to help execute some of these problems and deal with it, I'm, I'm doing a disservice by not being involved. And this is a distant world often in the Valley in Salem that is far removed from my Hood River problems and probably even more further removed from Eastern Oregon. You know, I'm at least somewhat in the fold and there's an interstate that runs to me. But, you know, as you as you get to Weezer in Ontario, I can imagine that um, even the Grand, you know, they, the they, have, they have yeah. to feel such, you know, for a state run program so far removed from that. And I, you know, I have a lot of I think we should have a lot of compassion for those folks. So I don't know if I got to the point, but that's my that was my statement. Mm -hmm. well, no, I think that really hits the nail on the head, and I think you really captured what I've heard from others in the state. I don't know, Nick, how do you see it? Well, you know, I have been involved in what I um, like to say two major pieces of legislation that I think have helped the city of Madras, one of which was started in about 2010 for the... Um, changes to the transportation planning rule that were passed, I think it was 12 or 11 sessions. And then also uh, two years ago, we passed a airport pilot program for UGB expansion. And going through both of those processes, the legislative processes, it, it's really interesting to me um, to think about this statistic. Um, I haven't looked lately, but it was about five years ago when I leave Oregon City's website and did the math. At that time, I think it was like 83 or 84% of all cities in Oregon have populations less than 15,000. And when you consider the legislative process in Salem and the discussions around different legislative proposals, it's really interesting to me how someone 
in Kaiser, uh, Ontario, can make statements about how this legislative proposal will or will not affect positively or negatively a small rural community, especially if uh, that legislator comes from a, a, a large community that is in a metro area. Fascinating to me. Because um, to me, it just doesn't align. I, in, in some cases, they don't, they don't really tangibly understand it. And, you know, I, I would also say it's, it's, it's interesting to me to think about how DLCD works through the legislative process and who they kind of respond to. You know, Tom McCall created a land use system. There was a reason why he created Thousand Friends because he knew there needed to be a special interest group to, to make sure that things didn't get out of whack for the legislatures. And I mean, knowing that, so that's why DLCD, you know, pays such great attention. There's, I think it's not disingenuous to say a partnership there. On the other hand, when you look at home builders and other large interest groups, there isn't the same amount of deference. And so, you know, certainly the large lobby gets a lot of attention, but when you start to look at the smaller rural communities and you know like Dustin said you know we're pumping permits we're trying to bring in new businesses to our community we're trying to you know my goodness update our comprehensive plan which seems to be more frequently than every 15 years and then somehow we need to be responsive within 24 hours on a particular legislative bill so that we can have a voice in Salem I mean it, it really is challenging and, and interesting so you know I would say that you know uh, that that's really in a way an equity and a challenge that when you have such a large amount of the state population living in a small rural community that are um, um, outside of by the way 83 percent or whatever the number is those are those are outside of the metro areas by the way too um, um, so you know it, it's interesting when you when you look at that from that perspective and I think that that really captures what we've heard from you know, John Morgan was our first guest and you know one of the things that he talked about was how we have to be planning for the whole state and not just fixating on some of these uh, more urbanized areas that tend to draw a little bit more gravity and tend to have a little bit more weight in Salem and, and that's you know I think you guys both have very articulate points there and that only comes with working in those jurisdictions and drilling back down to those jurisdictions let's let's return home for a second let's come back to your communities I'd love to learn a little bit more about how you've been able to look at the role of planning, identify those priorities, and help reduce the skepticism of the public, your elected officials, around what you're doing in your communities, the, the expertise that you bring into these settings, and how you've been able to establish your credibility you serve and, and articulate the need for sound community planning within, within those areas. Wow, that's a, that's a heavy one. That's why we have beer here. <laughs> you want me to start? I'm, I'm, no, I'm dive right into this. Yeah. I think there's a big, um, you know, I think what's really interesting, and I think this is, uh, you know, as much as we, we talked about, you know, kind of the maybe finding favor with the larger communities, I think this is where commu smaller communities can be really disadvantaged. Mm -hmm. The idea of debunking the myth that planning is a, uh, is, you know, we're the enemy. You know, well, public, you, I, public you're, you're wearing your tinfoil Agenda 21 hat right now. You may yeah. want to take that off just for, you know, good measure. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah. uh, I'm, uh, you know, I, I, I think a big thing that goes to to solving that is uh, is to be real transparent and to be available. 
and, and to be accessible to the people. And um, that, that comes at, at some risk. Now, I think, again, I, I'll take back to Hood River. Hood River is kind of experiencing that, that identity crisis, that it's a rural town that is now inhabited by, in a lot of ways, you know, people from the, the modern, you know, the bigger city. And it's that change which is really tough because I think what, you know, what we'll battle with is, you know, the idea that that cute romanticism that is once there, that when they arrived, there's a preservationist feeling to that. And they wanted to stay as, as much as a small town as when they arrived. And that is it's such an interesting kind of construct to work within to say, no, we need to plan for change, but at the same time have a large community saying, we're, we're very resistant of change. We chose this place. We've invested our lives here. We're, you know, this is our home. We love it. And yet we don't want it to change. And at the same time, it's, it's actually some of my oldest residents and long-term ag families that say, wait a minute, this place has changed. You, you know, this next generation, the people that are here, they changed it. And now we need to be actually open to, to future change. And that is amazing. It's like a, I have like a Neapol cultural Neapolitan sandwich of people. Because <laughs> usually you see the old school and it's most typical in a rural area say, we don't want change. You know, they're coming in. It's my old school has seen enough change already that they're now really kind of more receptive because they, they've seen they've, it happen. They've reached a point of like planning nirvana, haven't they, right? right. They're, they're like, it will change and we need to plan for that. I'm like, oh my God, this is, you know, third generation, fourth generation. That's the John Wood family. If you can't beat them, join them. <laughs> um, but they've, they've seen, they've just seen it change. And so that's, that's part of that. Um, but I think what, I, what I've tried to introduce to that is to be really present and be really transparent. And to not try to win anyone over with some grandiose, you know, fairy tale that if we do this, it's going to be great. It's, listen, this is the circumstances we're in. We did not get here overnight. We're not getting out of it overnight. I'm here to do some hard work. I need you to be involved in it because we need to go shoulder to shoulder. And there is no crystal ball. And and that's and that's no just silver kinda, bullets. there are no I need a port I'd say you know there's no silver bullet for this for our issues we need a portfolio of silver bullets mm -hmm. and and to just own that I mean really to be just let them know you're a human you're listening to them let them know we may not do what you ask you know but you know we're gonna listen and we're gonna try to listen to everyone we're gonna try to balance these interests we're and we're gonna. It's going to take a long time to get there and I think just owning that is is really refreshing to a lot of people is just just to step up and say listen this is this is a problem and and I'm here to work on it and I need you with me and and I think that that to me is that kind of again authenticity and ownership I think that that starts with being a, a real person and and let them know you're not just a bureaucrat off in the ivory tower in academia land you're out there speaking with people, listening to people, you know, trying to, you know, just to bring their voice, all voices into it. Not I, just the voice of the community, but the voices that you don't hear. You know, and, you, and I got to admit, that might be a true advantage of working in a smaller rural mm -hmm. community because of the very issue you identified earlier. There's no hiding. The public sphere is always omnipotent with you. You have that, that ability, perhaps even better than, than a lot of professionals in, yeah. in our field. Yeah, and that's... 
you know, but it's it's a blessing and a curse. Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, I I think that access is a great point. Uh, I, I would characterize um, a little bit differently, only because I think it's more of a personality uh, personality trait and strength of mine, which is um, relationships. And to me, that's what's just phenomenal about working in a small rural community. When you can, when you have someone who um, came to Madras in high school, their family owned the bowling alley, father died, he took over the business right after he took, um, I graduated high school, sold it, started up another business, grew that business, and then he, now he's, you know, um, that, it, well, and I should also mention in there, twice being the mayor, uh, once when he was 22. Um, so, you know, it, it's people like that, that you get to develop a relationship and just soak up as much of that perspective that you cannot read anywhere. Uh, certainly in a comp plan, something like that when you come in the community, you know, you just can't pull off some plan off the shelf and understand you know, the fabric that's created that, that's woven together to create the community. Um, and to Dustin's point, I think those relationships create the access. Part of one of my challenges is just, like anything, like anyone, communicating. You know, it's, okay, gotta get these things done today, I get those things done, but I also may not be communicating to the chamber or school district or some other uh, interested property owner, and so that, that's a challenge. So the people that really come in the city hall say, hey, I want to talk with someone about this. Those are the people I actually say, hey, man, if they're really interested. Let's take the time and understand them. And um, I also think that that's been part of my, um, um, it wasn't, I don't think, uh, my overt strategy. I mean, I didn't intend or know that this was a recipe for success, but you know, you mentioned what, how do you establish what the priorities are for the community or what we're going to tackle this year versus five, ten years from now. And, you know, one of my challenges when I first started is like, okay, um, we haven't done this, this, and this. I mean, it's really easy to identify the things that need to be done. What's harder to identify is where there's political support. Um, internally, from like the city manager's office, the planning commission, even city council, and then the community. Um, you know, I, I knew that when I first came to City of Madras, it's like, man, uh, wow, we have basically no goal seven component <laughs> to our comprehensive plan. Um, we really need to do something with it. Uh, we have, I mean, deplorable floodplain development standards that were implemented <laughs> in 83 that don't even make sense today. I mean, how so, how FEMA or DLCD have not come in and, you know, shamed us is is kind of amazing but you know so when those grants come about and say hey you know do you want to update your comprehensive plan for this or do that and you can develop some support you see that there's a tangible benefit to downtown or you know a real vocal uh, group in the community you know I, I tried to ride that horse you know ride that ride that wind in the sail and, and accomplish that and um, that's how I've been able to I think stay there for 10 years I should, I should also mention the um, person that I followed was there for all of six weeks. And then the person, the director before that was there for all of two years. Um, so and you, you might be onto something. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a degree of luck in everything. And so, 
You know, it, it really, from my perspective, it, access and just knowing people, taking the time. It, Dustin mentioned earlier, it's really difficult to go to the grocery store and not get buttonholed. And how difficult is that when you've got your child or wife with you? Um, on the other hand, you know, it's easy to keep a pulse on the community. <laughs> you know, in, um, you know, we, in Madras we have a slightly different problem in terms of public involvement. In Hood River, you know, the the uh, residents have a higher socioeconomic status. It's um, my guess is they have an attorney on speed dial. Madras, they don't. Um, they're worried about keeping a roof over their head, you know, making sure that they're at work every day, trying to increase their wages, trying to better their family and, and things like that. So, you know, yeah, I, I actually don't, it, unfortunately, I don't have to worry about a downtown association coming to the planning commission meeting and dropping a grenade on a proposal I have. See, I, I have to worry though about the people that are in that position who don't have a voice Yeah, because the affluent have strong voices. Yeah. They're well organized, and they make sure that they're um, they're heard. And I think that's part of as the planning director and kind of a working on behalf of a whole community. My job in a lot in a lot of ways is to see the voices and to listen to the voices that go unheard. And that's that my advocacy. You know, you talk about your advocacy planner. It's not only to represent them. But to make sure that they are represented at a small table, that they're you know they're not at the meeting, their you know second job, childcare, you know can't be involved. I got to make sure that those voices in a in a in a small vote community is really that, that we make an effort to make sure that they're heard. Yeah. It's hard, and you know it's especially hard when you've got a controversial case and um, we're going to localize it here although I think the lessons are probably applied also to your communities as well particularly yours Dustin I mean we have a we have a decision criteria on map amendments the proposal shall, and I'm, I'm dovetailing it a little bit or, or spitballing a little bit but the proposal will not be injurious to the general welfare or general interest of the community how do you define general interest is it the 50 angry people that are within the 250 foot radius of the, the proposed application for multifamily development what about the residents that may not have had the chance to move to your community because such a facility doesn't exist well, or I, the people who can't make the meeting like you were just saying who might benefit from a, a residential component like that how do you define that general interest I think it's as important as the planner is to be aware of that is to have your decision makers aware of that mm -hmm. and how do you foster that though they need to be out there too I mean, you know, you you can you can do your part to educate them, but to some extent, they are the they are citizens. They're the citizen representative, and I feel like I've been really lucky that my my folks have a, a pretty strong I call it the political will to make difficult decisions um, in the face of of a vocal animated group that feels aggrieved on behalf of what you know what we call the the public interest. You know, to see kind of this is a generational issue or this is, you know, this will reap benefits in 20 years or this is going to benefit a community of 8,000 persons when I got a room of really 100%, but only 100 people that are really angry and in my face. And I, you know, I have to honor that because, you know, as much as I can educate that, you know, there's something inherent that is beyond education. And that's their, again, kind of awareness 
and their real genuine attachment and accessibility to a greater community, not just their cliques, their social circles, their interest groups, to be aware of, of a broader community and how it works. I think that is, you know, that, that you, I, you know, you can foster that, but you can't, you can't teach that. Mm -hmm. And, and I think I'm, I'm real lucky to, to have that because in a circumstance where you have difficult situations and difficult decisions, absent that will, they're very exposed just as you as the planner, you know, mm -hmm. there's a small town, people know them, they have relatives, you know, and if without that kind of resolve, it's, it's really tough to make difficult decisions. So. Well, I wanted to see if Nick has anything that he wants to add on to it before shifting gears a little bit. I think we've got some great dialogue yeah. going here. You know, I would, um, I don't disagree with what Dustin Way said. I think one of the really unique and interesting challenges that I have is we have, we had to change our planning commission membership from seven to five because we couldn't fill two positions and we were having really difficult problems having a quorum for planning commission meetings. Um, and then uh, we've got three vacancies on our urban renewal. How do I go out and recruit? Should I go out and recruit? Getting to the point of making sure that the community or the, the decision maker is aware of the segment of the community that's not there and speaking, but still is affected. I, I think uh, it's a real challenge for me because uh, one, there aren't that many people that want to serve, and if they are, sometimes they have personal agendas, or as one of my long-term planning commission chairs says, they're a warm body, and we actually have some concrete examples of what warm body make the decisions they make that have created generational problems in our community. And uh, so, so it's uh, in a way almost an ethical dilemma uh, because I don't appoint anyone to the planning commission or urban renewal. Well, if you were looking for one and a half credits for AICP ethics, uh, <laughs> you're, you're, you're in the wrong room. <laughs> but, but to your point, yeah. Nick, I mean, yeah, it, it is an ethical dilemma. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it goes beyond just kind of, you know, hey, the, the, you know, advocacy planning, I think we all certainly have passions. We all learn about it in school, but, you know, time and place, appropriateness of it, and, you know, whose advocacy are you really following? Mm -hmm. You're not an elected official. Right. You are the representative of the community right. who works for a city manager mm -hmm. who is serving at the pleasure of a council mm -hmm. or a county commission. Mm -hmm. So it's hard, yeah. But there's a reason why I'm not elected by the people. There's well, a reason when why they knew your history by the planning. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason why the planning director doesn't need 51% of the popular vote, because I'd look at this circumstance and I'm, I'm not thinking about just this generation of people. I'm looking at a generation of people who don't vote. I'm looking at a generation of people that don't have it, that, you know, the people that I'm working for often aren't people that even are in Hood River. You know, they may be children now, you know, and they don't have a voice, they don't have a vote, but they're certainly gonna inherit the decisions that we make right now. So I think to some extent, you you have to transcend popularity, immediate popularity, the benefit of today for what, you know, and cast a vision and, and balance that, because clearly you can't just be visionary without having the practical reality. Otherwise, you will be 
six weeks and out of Madras. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and I think you, you, you get to a very uh, unique situation being a, a planner, a small community where stewardship actually is somewhat more of a component of your job than in a large community where you can leave that thumbprint and, you know, uh, you can actually have uh, impact on uh, the three-year-old today where they're going to, what park they're going to play at, uh, where their school's going to be at, the quality of life that they have, and whether they want to come back to your community after they go to college and graduate. Uh, One of the more fun things that I've I gotten to do. We're, we're launching kind of a, a town center plan here in Trapdale, a redo. The current plan is a 20-year-old document. And people wonder, you know, why why do I need to look at this document again? We, we have a town center. Why, why do we need to do it? I said, the last time this document was done, one of your city councilors was in kindergarten. Yeah. We have a, we have, we have yeah. a and, and another one was, I think, just starting a freshman year in high school. I mean, yeah, exactly. To both of your points, who on earth are we planning for? And I mean, when, when that statement gets made, and it was not even brought up by me, it was brought up by one of our town center ad hoc committee members. It's like, holy crap, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> and we think 20 years is a long horizon, but honest to gosh, it's not in many ways. Yeah. And what are these impacts? And what are, what, what are we advocating for? What, what is in our staff report? Well, and that imprint that you talk about is you know, much more assured in these types of jurisdictions. It means you can have a really large-scale uh, impact through your actions, but it also means what are you leaving for the next person that comes behind you? What kind of state of office are you leaving? Uh, shifting gears just a little bit, you know, we've talked about support from the state. We've talked about support from our locals. Uh, I want to talk about support of your professional organizations for a, for a few minutes here. And it's been somewhat observed that professional conferences, you know, the American Planning Conference, for example, or others that are out there, they often include more studies and presentations that are focused on larger jurisdictions. Um, and, and that's been attributed to a number of things, whether it's additional staff or resources available that allow for uh, the generation of projects or conference submittals. There are also the other, others that might say this is a, a reality is due to the allowances for innovation in larger cities. How do you respond to these types of characterizations? Well, I'll, I'll be honest with you. Um, I've not been satisfied with um, the professional development opportunities at the the annual OEPA conferences, and I, I, uh, I think that's a real kind of travesty. And it was a couple years ago. I, I came to this realization like I'm trying to get fulfill my continuing ed- education requirements for being a member of the AICP yeah I'm going to this conference and I'm not intellectually engaged that th- that's not okay so you know I went to city manager said okay so I go to the annual conference you know and if I Instead, didn't go to that, but just went to the national conference every other year to get all my credits. I think it'd be better. I'm here to tell you, the, the national conference in my mind is where it is at. Because you, you do see actually a lot of rural, small rural town communities. Um, this year is in New Orleans. Or, pardon me, New Orleans. There you go. I'm, I'm, from, I'm from Oregon. So I'm West, yeah. Yeah. You're from Oregon. What are you talking about? Exactly. So... <clears throat> Uh, that, that's my culture uh, shining through there. Um, 
Man, some really fascinating work that's been going on in the, the areas around uh, New Orleans, uh, particularly related to uh, hazard mitigations and other, also economic development. Uh, it's just fascinating. And so, um, in my opinion, it, it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate that sometimes, you know, Oregon is thought of as like the planning mecca of the nation. Although my, my good friend uh, Damien Cernick at the city of Bend uh, likes to remind me that the Oregon planning system is so good that it's never been replicated. Um, you know, I think that, that uh, in, in some regards, you know, there's actually a lot, of, a lot of lessons to be learned beyond the state of Oregon that can be applied. And, I'm, and I also think that uh, um, it, it's a function of being in a small rural community. It's hard for me uh, to put together a session. We're going to have the OAPA conference in Bend this year. The one of the committee chairs, Nick Lelak from Deschutes County, who is an amazing professional, uh, said, "Hey, all you planners in Central Oregon, you need to be you need to be submitting proposals." And I actually said, "All right, Madras, you could be submitting proposals on these four things." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it, it took a nudge, and yeah, we are, we are going to do some. Uh, we're going to we submitted a proposal, but it's just harder, I think, for the sm smaller communities to do that because just juggling all your other responsibilities. Yeah, and and again, I think it's part of the planner psychology that we're always looking here, we it, out in the front in the future. It's hard for us to look backwards and go, man, we really got that one right, or. Hey, we kind of missed it, and we, we we learned these things. Let's share that, you know. And personally speaking, I'll, I'll learn my lessons, and I'll move on. <laughs> you know, I don't care to learn that lesson more than once. So I think you know that's that in a way could be uh, a cause of why you're not seeing as much of the small rural community components to the, the representation in the professional development opportunities in the state. Well, the way I look at education, you know, on the national level, I think it's an opportunity to, um, and a lot of times to be invigorated by, to break yourself from, from the day to day and, and to change uh, your perspective because we can grow, you know, we can grow as creatures of habit the way we've done it and the way, you know, it's always been done and the way it was done before us and the way we're going to do it again. So I think I find a lot of value in that. I think, um, you know, I'm going to give a lesson, you know, kind of take a lesson from AOC. Um, and, and just for our listeners that don't know what AOC is, give us a... Oh, it's the Association of Oregon Counties. Thank you. I think um, on their planning directors, um, they do a great job as far as community. And I think that has a, as much value as what I can learn from a conference is the value I can learn from my peers who are grinding it out the same way day to day. And... Either it's cathartic because you can vent and you have shared experience, or you can you can take and, and absorb that information. And I think that's something that I think is as much as education from an academic perspective and case studies. It's the idea of community amongst planners and your peers, and kind of applying that shared knowledge in a, in a team mentality. And and there's some, you know, I don't want to get too woo woo millennial with the teamwork, but you know, at the same time there's a ton of value to, to take that experience. And I, and I find OAPA, um, the conference, a lot of times is, is much about 
networking with your professionals in between the margins of the events themselves as it is you know hearing the recital of whatever the legislative session is of the of the day or you know the the my my ethical obligations as a planner that I need to you know score my 1.5 continuing ads it's it's catching up with people and and I think that's something that we easily become vulnerable and miss as the small town folks because mm-hmm. you are so captured in your day to day a lot of times you can you know, you come up for air and all of a sudden it's, oh man, it's spring? You know, I am like, <laughs> like I've just been grinding and grinding and grinding in my own front yard and you, you can kind of forget about that and lose perspective. So I think, you know, some of those moments it is, it's an opportunity to to break from that norm, to break from your position and, and again, to see, see what else the rest of the world is doing because, you know, we as Oregonians, we can be very we can see it our way, you know, the way that we, we do it. And we oftentimes do it the same way every time. I think there's a lot of innovation that, that happens outside of our realm that we, that we can learn from. And if we can find a way to interject that, some of those best management lessons into the system that we work with, I think it strengthens our system. And as we start wrapping up and on that topic of kind of innovation, one, one thing that we saw in actually the June issue of Planning Magazine, which I know you both have read cover to cover already, <laughs> being the good steward. I should just read the cover. Oh. Yeah. I don't even know what the cover said. Planning Palooza, I think, is what it is. Oh, right, because it was Lollapalooza. Right. Yeah, that's group, right. Yeah. yeah. And group home. Group home. I, I read the inside cover. So, like what was on the cover? I needed to read the inside. <laughs> Please read Planning Magazine. Now available at your local planning office. Anyway, though, uh, one thing it did also touch on, but the article I did read about was about tactical urbanism and kind of that emerging trend. And frankly, it's cool, right? I mean, you get to really apply something quickly, maybe not in the most traditional ways, but, you know, how... Uh, how it can foster that spirit of creativity and excitement in a community. Um, how do you both encourage innovation or creativity within your jurisdiction with either that tactical urbanism idea maybe in the back of your mind or maybe you've applied it? And how do you um, convince uh, folks who need to maybe sign off on that that it's a good idea to be creative and different? And building on that too, how do you do that amongst your staff? And thinking about both in the community and within your own houses, how are you encouraging innovation and creativity? Well, I, I would say I, I don't know. And I mean, this is probably a question for the people I work with, how innovative I am. I, I don't know. They'd probably say I'm somewhat innovative, but I don't know that I am. Um, I would say I'm innovative. But from a project perspective and in terms of creating using innovative um, techniques or doing something differently to achieve some sort of outcome. The way I've been innovative is to focus on the, the mutually under, the collective understood outcome that we all want to achieve. And it's easy to see all of the barriers that we typically um, identify early on like oh well ODOT's gonna have a say in this or oh you know the LCD won't let us do this you know I, I tend to focus on the outcome what what do we really want and if I can get all the partners to agree to it including DLCD maybe it's thousand friends or Farm Bureau or you know whoever then then I start to focus on how do we get there and that's where I see the actual innovation occurs or the, I should say the creativity 
because I, I don't get so worked up on how we get there. I just want to make sure we get there and that, that everyone that has um, a need or concern that, that that's addressed. Um, you know, one of the examples was uh, when we, we did our urban growth boundary expansion for the Diamond Trucks North America test facility, uh, what they call the High Desert Proving Grounds, uh, where they're doing a lot of their unmanned uh, truck testing. You know, how are we going to bring in 200 acres of the Madras Airport that's in no shape or form adjacent to the UGV? You know, we got there. Uh, we, we figured it out. And so that's why I say I don't know if I'm really that creative or innovative. More so maybe developing support on the collective, the, the, the outcome that we all agree upon and being committed to working with everyone. But almost setting an environment where that type of creativity or creative exactly. thinking is there. And you're not yes. closing yourself off to any right. potential solutions. Right. It's setting a goal and then figuring out whatever the best mechanism to yeah. get there. Yeah, you know, uh, I would also say that, that that concept has worked well because in, in a very kind of granular level, granular level, you know, we said, hey, DLC, we want this this development within our city limits. And they said, well, why? So because I want them to hook up to our sewer plant. Why do you care about that? Well, it's another user. I mean, we've got debt on the thing. We, you know, we do need more users to help pay for debt. Secondly, the wastewater plant is like 300 feet away from the facility. Why would we allow a septic system when we have a wastewater treatment plant? And so when you focus on the broader Kind of perspective of hey we've invested all this money why wouldn't we connect that's when you start to kind of get people to say yeah i think we might be able to work with you and, and help you get there and that's where i think the that's where the neat stuff happens i think on um when it comes to innovation i think the key is is to to be in a lot of ways goal oriented because the goal and that destination you know in, in a lot of ways changes over time and so that inherently, if you're if you're if you're pursuing something, and and there's vision there, um, that in, in itself should create an environment. And you know, as the director, in a lot of ways, you have to embody that. You know, I, I consider myself needing to be in a lot of ways lead visionary, and and immediately first person responsible for tactics. And I think that's. Um, you know, it, it's it's kind of it sets the stage for that. Now, when it comes to, um, you know, but you can't do it by yourself. So you have to instill that in those around you. And again, it's I'm not a visionary for my try to be a visionary for my own sake, but to to try to make that infectious. You know, like look, this is what we think about, or it's just to ask people and challenge them about. What do you want to be? What do you want to be when you grow up? You know, and because you're going to be something. It's not like we can sit here and just hope, you know, do you want to set a direction or are you just really willing to take your chances? And I think in a community that I, that I represent, people are passionate enough about their place um, that they, they want to set that direction. And, and so I think it's pretty easy to help, you know, to compel them to do that. I think one other um, you know, kind of lesson and, and circumstances is unlike your position, my predecessor there was there for 28 years, mm -hmm. and and I can only hope to serve as 
you know, half that time in a lot of ways. I want to be there for the rest of my career, but that is a long haul. And so by virtue of being, you know, being the new person in a small organization, it provides opportunity to innovate. I bring, you know, I'm, you know, at some point you become a planner and it starts taking over who you are as a person. So the change of people and the change of faculty, I'm bringing all my experience, all my expectations, everything with me. It changes things because I am, you know, I am now that person there, and I don't all of a sudden, I'm not my planner person, and I leave. I'm somebody else. You know, I am always, I'm always planner. You know, no matter what. And you know, when you're passionate about what you do, and you do have that stewardship responsibility, you know, I take what I do real serious. I mean, I and I, you know, I, I feel like I'm, you know, in a lot of ways public property beholden to my community and I owe it to them to step up and do it so you know I'm compelled I'm compelled personally and professionally to step up and to innovate and try to figure out solutions and and I hope I hope those around me share that because I want to embolden them and I want to you know as a part of a director position your job is to equip the people that work for you with resources and when you have a small group you have a mission you better hope that they're really on board with that because you know they all need to be equipped. So there's no room to hide. There's no margins. You know, everyone is, is lifting all the time. So I think it's in so many ways. It's it's attitude, and and, mm. and that'll flush it out. So that's my that's my innovation creativity speech. Gosh, I feel like running through a brick wall for you. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, you could be a this. football coach or something. Yeah, Great. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Football coach, come on, he's a city planner. Yeah. <laughs> this is Oregon at soccer. So, or football America. Yeah. So we're supported by a partnership with the Oregon chapter of the American Planning Association. OAPA currently provides resources covering a wide variety of planning-related issues in support of Oregon planners. What other resources or professional organizations would you guys recommend in addition to the ones we've talked about already today? I think that everyone should take a chance um, and, and look at the Urban Land Institute. I think ULI is really great in so much as um, it's kind of a, a little more of a melting pot of industry, the dark side, as well as playing in academia. And I think there's some good lessons learned there that really you don't plan in academia. You don't plan in a rule book. You plan in a capitalist market where private interest, you know, the Fifth Amendment, the 14th Amendment of the Constitution are at play and people's pocketbooks and investments are there and their livelihood is there. So to understand the playing field you're in, I think ULI does a good job in capturing those various interests. And if you wanna to speak to the development community, you better know what their interests are, what language they use. And you know that, that to me is something that I think they, uh, they do a good job doing. So, you know, I like the CNU, you know, Congress of New Urbanism. You know, I love our organizations. You know, they, they, I think they speak a lot of ways to us as community, but you need to learn as a planner to speak to other people's communities. The real estate program at Clemson University, the one conference that they always really focused on was the ULI, their Land Institute Conference. So I definitely hear you on in that regard. Nick, what about you? What other, what other organizations might you recommend for our listeners? Yeah, I actually take a little bit different um, tact, I think. Uh, First of all, I would say that as a uh, Oregonian, born and raised, uh, I I almost take for granted the OAPA. 
you know I mean that's that's the layup for me it's like yeah they're always there I mean, um, so that said you know people beyond look at the OAPA and, and you can you can see great resources and great things that they're doing that said part of my background is so I actually have a, a master's in community regional planning from Oregon but then I also have a master's in public administration um, because I actually uh, really um, intellectually was just challenged with how do you manage such a large group of people and organization and so uh, I I really like uh, ICCNA, or ICNA um, and, and and just for International City and County Managers Association yeah. and uh, to that point I one of the best ethics sessions I've ever been to was at the New Orleans conference. Uh, he's got it down now. He's yeah. getting there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just have to be reminded. Um, and uh, a, a professor compared the AICB code of ethics to the city manager's code of ethics. And uh, so it was really instructive to me about the differences in who we serve and things like that. So the ICCMA, however it's pronounced, um, has been good for me because it, it, it brings on that management component that I think is um, really uh, helpful for me. I, you know, the uh, Oregon chapter doesn't provide that. It's more, you know, tactics and policy, things like that. I don't know that there's a good organization Oregon that really um, and I would say maybe the uh, the OCPDA needs to do a better job in the plan director. I think we can be self-critical. Sure. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah. I mean, hey, uh, former president, currently serving as vice president. I can always do better. We can always do better. But we don't, I think, nurture our planners to become managers. And when when you get up the management level, you know, when the city manager talks, you listen. <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, it's difficult. So how do you? You know, manage the politics, budget, priorities, do all the necessary organizational planning, and and well, then all of that other stuff that we do in our office. Yeah, uh, and good. then in some cases, especially in smaller communities, you might find yourself a community development director, and all of a sudden you're in charge of building staff and inspectors, inspectors and protocols, or code enforcement, mm -hmm. which is a whole other fun world too. Or, or IT, like myself. Yeah, oh, wow, that's beyond <laughs> yeah. my pay grade. Yeah. So, yeah, I, so I would say that that organization has been really helpful for me. Um, and, and, you know, they do have a free, uh, I would say, you know, newsletter that they email out that has some quick little blurbs in there uh, on leadership and management and then kind of issues du jour that's been uh, good. I think I'd also recommend uh, Planning Peeps is a, yes. is a page on, uh, on Facebook, and I think they might have an Instagram um, it's a meme generator and, and a bunch of anecdotes that really, after dealing with what you deal with during the day, it's some levity and, and ability to laugh at ourselves and, and kind of laugh at both the comedy and tragedy that we deal with. I would, hi I would highly recommend planning peeps for your, your professional development and, and mental health. I can absolutely concur with that. Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure having you both. Thank you for your expertise. Thank you for your service. And uh, we'll look forward to catching up with you hopefully here again soon. Thank Cheers. You. Thank Cheers. you. Thank you. Fun.
To learn more about Nick or Dustin, or any of our guests, visit the Oregon chapter of the American Planning Association webpage under the News and Media tab. On the next episode of Pints with Planners, we will bring you a conversation on master-planned communities with Steve Nygren, founder and CEO of the Serenby Community, located on the edge of Atlanta, Georgia. Thank you once again for joining us for this episode of Pints with Planners. And please, as always, plan responsibly. Additional support for Pints with Planners was provided by the Oregon Chapter of the American Planning Association. PWP's theme music was written by Chris Lesane. Haley Schiller is our graphic designer. Production and editing was handled by me, your host, Ryan Kruger. The views and opinions expressed on this episode are that of our guests and your hosts, and may not necessarily reflect those of the Oregon chapter of the American Planning Association, the city of Troutdale, or any other affiliates of this program. If you have comments or questions, you can send us a message via the Pints with Planners Facebook page, find us on Twitter, or you can email us at pintswithplanners at gmail.com. We look forward to having you join us next time for another episode of Pints with Planners. Thank you.